My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. Danielle, if you had to choose one word to describe your mother, what would that word be? I would say gritty. Gritty. Yes, gritty. There was so much tenacity and Mm -hmm. drive. She's going to be so mad that I chose that word. Welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves, a weekly conversation about one extraordinary mother. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Try to imagine this. It's 1963. You're a 28-year-old woman from a poor family in Japan. You've just made the bold decision to leave Japan and move to Los Angeles by yourself. And you barely speak a word of English. You take up running. Running becomes your glorious obsession. You can run a 100 miles at a stretch. 13 years later, it's 1976, and you've just turned 40. You're married now, and you've just had a baby. You decide to run the New York City Marathon, the world's biggest race. And you win it. Even better, you become the first American woman to win it. Then you win it again the next year. And four decades go by before another American woman wins that race. My guest today is Danielle Mika Nagel. She's the director of mindfulness at Lululemon. And she's the daughter of Michiko Mickey Gorman, the runner I just described. Danielle, thank you so much for talking to me today about your mom. She sounds like she was a really incredible woman. She was, and it's challenging for me to sometimes refer to her in the past tense. So during our conversation, I may flip to present or past, and I already feel like I need to get a box of Kleenex. Do you have a box of Kleenex there? (laughs) I do. But when I told my friend, a good friend of mine, that I was doing this, she said, oh, you better get those box of tissues. That's the only thing you cry about these days. So um, the way that I even came to this um, idea to talk to you is that uh, sometimes I write obituaries for the New York Times, and there's a special series called Overlooked No More about people whose obits weren't done at the time they died. And I was talking to Amy Padnani, who's um, the editor of that special series. And she said, you know, you should really talk to Mickey Gorman's daughter. I said, okay, who's Mickey Gorman? And she sent me the link to your mom's obit. And I have to say, I'm a little bit surprised that the Times didn't run an obituary at the time of her death in 2015. It took three years before an obit was actually written. Do you remember that at all? No, I was so in my, um, I was going through a lot of anger and sadness that, I mean, I didn't tell anybody that my mom passed away for a couple of weeks. I told just my family 
and her very close friends. I didn't want to put it out there into the world because I felt like it finalized her death. And even saying her death sounds so final, even now. So I wanted to keep all that kind of close so I could feel that she was still alive with me in this space. And then when I finally did, I I did get a lot of people starting to email me from the from her uh, running community. Yeah, if if the Times had posted something, I probably I I wouldn't have even noticed it. Okay, let's start with a little pop quiz. One thing I do, well, I've been doing it for a long time. I wrote a book um, about my own relationship with my mother a few years ago, and I would give book talks, and I had this notebook, and I would send the notebook around and ask everyone to write down one word to describe their mother. So if I were to ask you, what one word would you use to describe your mother? Danielle, what would that word be? I would say gritty. Gritty. Yes. Gritty, but graceful as well. It's challenging to sum it up in one word for her, but there was so much tenacity and Mm -hmm. drive that she persevered even when she didn't have cheerleaders supporting her. She's going to be so mad that I chose that word. (laughs) (laughs) I'm supposed to be graceful and beautiful and elegant. (laughs) She would have much preferred that I had used a word like that to describe her. Did she talk much about her childhood? It sounds like it was not a very easy childhood. She did tell me stories about her childhood. She definitely did not live a privileged life at all. Um, she grew up in, in China for the first 10 years. So she was born in Chintao and lived there for the first 10 years of her life. It was during, yeah, actually it was 1935. So it was before the war, but Then she had moved back to Japan with her parents and stayed there till she was about 28 years old when she moved to the States. Mm -hmm. Did her parents stay in Japan? My grandfather passed away when she was, I believe, 21. Then um, her mother, my grandmother, had stayed in Japan, her brothers as well, and she came by herself. Really brave. And what sparked the the whole idea to come to the States? I think for my mom, it's part of this vision that she had. She is such, this is where I go back to present and past tense, but um, she is such a dreamer. And that's what she instilled in me too. She would always say, anything is possible. Whatever you want in your life, you can create So I think for her, she really looked at the States as an opportunity for a new life, a better life. And as soon as she got there, I know she was living at the um, Salvation Army, like women's housing in in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I think it was $80 a month for rent and two meals were included. So she only had those two meals. She then... um, I think made like $100 a month at her secretary job. So the $20 she was sending back to her mom in Japan. So when she showed up in the the United States, she had $10 in her pocket. Do you have trouble imagining anyone who would 
come to this country with $10 in their pocket? Yes. I cannot imagine the trust, the leap of faith, the courage that it took. I mean, 28 is not that young. And by 28, I think you you are... I think most people would think about consequences and like, okay, what if this doesn't work out? But at 28, for her to have that courage to say, okay, I'm going to leave everything that I know, go to another country where I don't speak the language and um, and just like take the sleep of faith. I mean, it kind of tells me that Japan for her at that time, was it, it was not a place that she envisioned for her future or for her, her family. And how old was she when she married your dad? She was, okay, so she was 39 when she had me, mm-hmm. and it took them about seven or eight years, so I think she was about 31. So what I've read is that she was just so light, five feet tall, 89 pounds, and that your dad said, you know, you could um, go to the gym and then you'd gain some weight because you'd be hungry, right? Right. Well, my mom always had a pretty big appetite. She's one of those types of people who is so small, but able to eat like a large, extra large size ramen. So that's something that's one of our comfort foods that we'd always have together is ramen. So yeah, she would have like an extra large bowl and somehow she wouldn't gain weight. Perhaps it was also just for her overall well-being. And so my dad had suggested, oh, why don't you go to the athletic club with me? And, and so this little person uh, starts running and loves it. And I guess kind of catches the running bug. Mm-hmm. I think for her, running was kind of like transcending So it was her meditation. She was very musical. And the way in which which she ran, some of her friends would describe her as having a built-in metronome where she was anchored to the beat of the rhythm that she set for herself. Mm. And so when people would run with her, they would also anchor to her beat. She would be that lead. So I feel like from talking to my mom, because I'm not a runner at all, and I would say, how do you get past all these thoughts where when I start running, I say to myself, oh, I feel so heavy. This is so exhausting. I want to stop. And she would say, those are the what we call the junk time at the beginning. And you've got to get past those first few miles where your mind is telling you to stop. And then you move into a place of just absolute, I would use the term transcendence of just being in the flow, being in the zone. You're not distracted anymore your limiting beliefs and you're in this state where you're absolutely connected. And she said when she would get there, she she would run for a hundred miles, which she did. Amazing. Yeah, she was a hundred miler. And so running a marathon was nothing. <laughs> Probably. Okay, so she trains for the New York City marathon and then the famous scene where she's eating at a Magic Pan restaurant? The night before. It is such a cute story. Yeah, she's at the Magic Pan restaurant and she orders two spinach soufflés. The people next to her, a uh, couple, just looked at her uh, like, yeah, how, how is this tiny woman eating two entrees? So she turns to them and says, 
I'm going to win the New York City Marathon tomorrow. And they were both so shocked. They're like, what? And she said, yes, I'm going to win. And so they said, okay, we'll see you tomorrow at the finish line. And they were there. And they were there. I asked my mom after, I said, oh my gosh, did they end up showing up? And she said, yes, they were right there waiting for me. They were so excited. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, it took, I mean, I hate to disappoint your mother, but gritty really comes to mind. I mean, she then decides, so she, she runs it. um, And she was behind the, um, the kind of the favorite who was favored to win. Then she sees, first she can't see her because um, she's so far ahead of your mom. She's running alongside her and then she overtakes her and she tries not to seem tired. Your mm. mom tries not to seem tired and she just, she, although she's exhausted, she sprints ahead and then this woman is in her rear view mirror for the rest of the race. And she wins, and they're the magic pan people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you were how old? Oh, that was, I was born in 75. So I can't remember which, which one that was. Because she won the New York twice and the Boston Marathon twice as well. And so did people recognize her? Do you know, would they recognize her on the street? They would. I mean, these are stories that she would tell me later because I was... When she was winning, I was an infant. Um, when we would go back, she was inducted in the Hall of Fame several years ago. I want to say a few years ago, but she passed away a few years ago. When we went to New York, it was like all these people remembered her, and um, she definitely left a legacy. She left your dad when you were how old? Seven. Seven, and she raised you by herself? And it sounds like she was a very devoted mom. She totally was. I mean, after she left my dad, she never dated anyone. She was completely focused on me. She was driving me. I mean, now as a mother myself, I'm wondering how she had the energy to do all the things that she did for me, like driving me to ballet classes, piano lessons, school also being a secretary and running. So at one point, that's when I think she just said, I need to let go of the running. Well, also, let's see. So she was then by that time in her 40s and 50s. Correct. So she wasn't competing, but she did continue to run as, as a, I mean, I wouldn't, as a form of exercise. I see. And because it was her it was her space. It was, as you said, her meditation. It gave her equilibrium. Power, too. Mm. I mean, when I think about the Japanese culture during the time she was growing up in Japan, well, some of the cultural uh, differences, so like in, in the inequality, the gender inequality. And back then, it was uh, just so much more present. So I think for her, she was raised in a way where women were taught to be subservient. Uh, Women were supposed to be in the kitchen. They uh, were to serve the husband. So uh, a lot of her beliefs were also like that too. And I'm surprised at how much my mom was able to um, just break those beliefs down 
uh, even though they were core to how she was brought up and they were still there, but she was able to detach from them too. So I think the running gave her this space where she was equal to men. I mean, she was beating men as she was winning and it allowed her to have this sense of power. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm the same as everyone else. I'm, I'm not beneath anyone. Yeah. It reminds me that I, um, I was reading your, your blog series about her, um, her illness and her death. And you said that you had come across an old letter or something in her journal. She had written a journal entry where she said, I'm so glad in this subservient tone, when you were born, I'm so glad I was able to give Mike a child. Yes. And your reaction was, that's not the power mother I know. That was a, that the tone was of subservience, right? Right. And there's some relationships in which we can revert back to that old pattern. And so sometimes I would witness that with my mom and my dad, where she would kind of revert back a little bit to more of the subservient wife, even up until her death. And, And that would drive me crazy. And do you have any sense of why she left? Why she left my dad? Um, I feel like the two of them, um, I mean, my dad was a, was a really sweet, is a really sweet human being. I, I just can't see them in great partnership together. And perhaps part of it was also the language barrier and maybe the cultural barrier too. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that they were a good match for one another. I mean, maybe they were. Who, I mean, who am I to say if they were a good match or not? I mean, they were, they were together for 14 years, which is yeah, crazy to think about that they, they lasted that long. Japanese, obviously, was her first language. Mm-hmm. And how, how was her English? Her English was, was pretty good especially learning English as a second language when you're an adult. Japanese was definitely her her mother tongue, and so she felt most comfortable in Japanese. And then with her, and we we always mixed, spoke Japanese and English. I would speak mainly half and half, and she would be speaking primarily in Japanese. And then my grandmother didn't speak any English, so I would spend a lot of time with my grandmother too, especially when my mom was out running. I would be mm-hmm. with my grandma. Did you ever resent it that she was out running? Oh, no. No, I, I always wanted my mom, because she spent so much energy on me, I would always want her to date. I mean, I was more like go out. And I think perhaps as a teenager, too, I appreciated my freedom when she wasn't in the house. So there was probably uh, some some like selfish desire in me telling her to do things too. Um, you said in one of your blog posts that um, she was always fast at everything. Everything had to be a race and a competition. If she was driving, she was cutting off other drivers. If yes. there was a line to cash out at the grocery store, she was speeding through. Yes, all the time. That's not very Zen. <laughs> no, I <laughs> know it's, it's not. No, she wasn't very zen i mean she was so sometimes i think the japanese culture 
externally, we may seem like we're, we're put together and maybe I'm just, I'm just, I should just talk about my, my, my mom and myself. We're gracious. But then once those doors are shut, then we're like screaming and we're loud and it's the uh, complete opposite of what we may be showing. But um, that's kind of how it was. So she would, yeah, she would just be racing all the time or competing in some way too. So very mm-hmm. competitive. Well, of course. I mean, you can't win a marathon, a big marathon, like the New York City Marathon, unless you are competitive. Right. <laughs> and competitive in all things. Interesting. She sounds like a multi-layered person. Yes. Yeah. So when she got sick, uh, and it was with lung cancer, mm-hmm. right? I was shocked. I mean, she was probably one of the healthiest people I've ever known. I mean, she had pretty much a macrobiotic diet. Not that that was just the way in which she grew up. Never smoked. Mm. And so for the doctor to say lung cancer, I mean, I was just completely shocked. And then he explained this is non-small cell lung cancer, so it's not... It's not from uh, nicotine. And you must have felt, so you were the only child, and you must have felt an incredible burden because what you were seeing was this gradual, and then when she got diagnosed, sudden reversal of roles. Mm -hmm. She had taken care of you for all those years, and then you were taking care of her. Right. Did she accept the caregiving? Oh, totally. That was also a journey. So So what would you say, in what way did she shape who you are? Yeah, my mom has impacted me so much in who I am today. And sometimes the, the experience of watching her and... Um, being a first generation Japanese immigrant, I can I can sometimes take that on to that experience of subservience occasionally. And then sometimes I swing completely in the other direction because I'm like, oh, hell no, no one's ever going to talk to me like that. You know, I'll go into that direction too. So any strength I have is from her and she's so much stronger than I am. I have a competitive drive too, but not not as much as my mom. I think it has been uh, diluted through me. I'm definitely lazy when it comes to physical exercise. I mean, you know, I would I'll walk and she'll run, and this was happening when she was in her seventies. I couldn't even keep up with her. And what did she give you that's very positive that you want to pass on to your daughters? You have two daughters. Yes, they're 13 and 15. I think um, one of the most positive things is that she really believed and demonstrated that anything is possible. That's a lesson that I want to share with my daughters as well, that they can do anything they want to. And that might tie into my next question, which is what is the best advice she ever gave you? You know, it's kind of like... I think it's in line with this. You can do anything you want to. Um, But I remember, and I don't know if I put this in my blog post, but I remember I was in 
her place in Los Angeles. I had married my first husband just like a week before. I was in my bedroom, my old bedroom that I grew up in, in LA. I'm crying. And my mom comes over to me. She's stroking my hair. And she's like, don't worry, Mika-chan. She never called me Danielle unless she was really mad. So she's always called me by my Japanese name. Which is what? Mika. It's Mika. But then when you're speaking to a child or you're speaking to somebody who's younger than you or or like conversational friends, you you add chan. It's like the more casual, endearing form of son. A a parent would never say like Katie's son. They Mm -hmm. would say Katie chan. So my mm-hmm. mom would say, Mika-chan, don't worry. You know, people get married two, three, four times. You can get a divorce. You can get married again. Who cares? And so that's just what I remember because I was crying thinking, oh, my gosh, I made the biggest mistake by marrying this person. And, yeah, I think that was um, the best advice that I can think of right now in this moment. So you and you did. You divorced that person. Right. Found- <laughs> Found your person. <laughs> yes. Found the right person. And she never did. Do, do you think that just isn't something she, she wanted or might have been a little gun shy? Yeah. I think part of her, I think also growing up in Japan, um, she's she's not, she was never like the proactive. She's not going to start dating people. And I think so much of her attention was on raising me that she didn't put any effort into that. Mm. But I did really want her to to experience um, like a beautiful partnership. That makes me sad because it sounds like she had so much to give. She did. I mean, I think also the problem was she just looked so young. She was 70, but she looked like she was 40. So when she would get asked out, it was always by people who were like 20 or 30 years younger than she was. And Mm. my mom would say, oh my gosh, I'm old enough to be your mother. And I'm like, don't say that. Just go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Did she ever take you back to the village in Japan? She, She might have taken me when I was really young, but I don't have any memory of it. Her town is called Minami Aizu. Which I understand has, um, they have a, a race named after her. Is that right? Right. I know it's called the Gorman Cup. It's, I think it's a 10K. And the year that my mom passed away, it was so beautiful. And they had sent me some photos and all the runners. It's still, it's still emotional for me to talk about this, but all the runners had tied black bands around their arm Mm. but I do I do want to go and and visit that town and and maybe walk the race (laughs) Danielle I want to thank you so much for talking to me you know I really appreciated you reaching out and when I received your email I know I already said this to you in my response but just tears came into my eyes I was so grateful brings my mom back into this space for me and that's it this week for our mothers ourselves our theme music was composed and performed by andrea perry paula mangin is our artist in residence and a special thanks to susan care who helped with graphic design this week 
If you have a great mother to suggest for the show, and she can be your own, send an email to ourmothersourselves at gmail.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredek Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, everyone, and stay safe.